can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction. Welcome to another edition of Football Insiders, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. This is the last of our sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, which was held in Sydney in November. It covers some of the issues that were amongst the biggest in 2020, not just in Australia, but worldwide. And that is, do Black Lives Matter in football? Unfortunately, one of the key people who were going to be part of the session um, was author and academic Professor John Maynard, who unfortunately was hospitalised that particular morning with an emergency But we do have Professor John Evans from UTS, who has written a lot and studied a lot about Indigenous participation in sport, not just football, but all sport. And of course, Francis Waratifi, who is well known to all football fans, both as a professional player, a former Socceroo. He's not only on the board of FIF Pro, which is the World Professional Footballers Players Union, but he's also now the chairman of the PFA locally. They're talking with Trevor Thompson, formerly of the ABC, on Do Black Lives Matter in Football? Four years since um, uh, Chris Kaepernick did his uh, taking a a knee before uh, what I think was a pre-season match in the uh, the NFL, uh, attacked by some, praised by others for for doing so, Donald Trump famously uh, called for all NFL club owners to sack any player who took a knee while the national anthem was being played. Uh, that was an experience specifically in the United States some time ago. But, of course, we now know, we, we now see that uh, taking a knee is uh, de rigueur in football all over the world now. We see it just about everywhere. Um, of course, there's uh, nothing new about racism in the world, um, but perhaps, well, in the way that I see it anyway, the spread of the Black Lives Matter movement, if we see it as a movement, is uh, not just an expression of uh, revulsion about uh, racism and the obscenities it brings, but is a move to a phase where there's an active resistance to racism. And I think that's probably the cultural difference that's uh, still underway. Um, you know, I've talked, of, we mentioned here that it has an American origin. Of course it does. Um, but it involves uh, people around the world now, according, uh, including in Australia. So um, today I expect we'll talk about what this means for football, uh, where Australia stands in relation to other countries that are also dealing with these kinds of issues and uh, where we move on to from here. Um, Francis, could I start with you and, and say, you know, how, uh, how much do we feel, uh, and, and I'm uh, conscious of your uh, involvement with FIFPRO here as well, how, how unique is the Australian experience of, uh, of uh, racism and the, and the Black Lives Matter response? How much are we linked into a kind of international network of resistance here? Or how much are we dealing with a, a domestic situation? Oh, thanks very much, everyone, and uh, it's great to see a lot of uh, faces here, uh, old and new, and uh, 
and yeah, great effort for all the people that are here and for all those uh, that are online. Um, yeah, as far as how we're linked in with uh, Black Lives Matter, I think that that's the thing, that it, it is a global movement. And I think that um, we are not immune. We don't, we don't exist in a vacuum, certainly with regard to sport. And I think that when we look at the way uh, the issue of racism in Australia, and I know, I mean, it goes back to when I was a player. I remember in the AFL back in those days, uh, the Colin McAllister's, uh, he was a Collingwood president, uh, making a statement around uh, Nikki Winmar saying that if black players want to be, uh, Aboriginal players, by the way, wanted to be respected, they, they had to act like white people, you know, and literally we had a, 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 the president of a club uh, uh, making these types of statements in the media. Um, and when we fast forward to, to today, I'm not sure that there's been a, um, a great deal of um, progress, if you like. Uh, certainly when I'm talking about sport, I'm talking within the AFL, in particularly in with regard but i'm also talking about sport in general i think that football's been very good in the sense that we've um we were one of the first sports um to actually uh put put together an equal opportunity code and that was back during my time and that's one of the first things that the pfa did uh and i was along with the pfa i was on the pfa executive when we when we pushed um um the soccer australia at the time to actually enact, enact this code as a result of um me having suffered um, racial, um, racial discrimination uh, in the stadiums and, and sometimes on the field. So it, it is linked in. And I think that, you know, we need to, we need to sort of look at it as a, as a global movement, uh, as something that affects all of us. And, and when, we look, when we look at what's happening today with what's happened with Adam Goods in recent times, you can see very clearly that still that we got a huge issue with racism. And I think that, you know, that if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to, um, I think I made a note here. If you want to talk about racism, you also need to understand this uh, this this issue of, call, of, of whiteness. Uh, you know the, the the way that these power structures operate uh, to to perpetuate racial hierarchies, and unless you actually tackle that, you know that you're, you're not going to actually. Um, all you're doing is basically um, uh, is dealing with symptoms uh, every time we get this issue. And and I'm sure hopefully I'll get an opportunity to talk a little later on about how these power structures manifest and how we challenge them in our everyday lives and in terms of in, and inside institutions. You made reference there about uh, personal experiences. I mean, I don't want to necessarily to go into masses of detail here, but what, what, what kind of personal experiences? Well, I mean, it's, it's, look, it still happens today. I mean, it's, it's the in-stadium abuse, you know, of, uh, you know, racial abuse, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you were shocked. I mean, Two years ago, I was playing in over 45s football and I was, um, and, and I was shocked when a, an opposition player actually called me a black cunt, you know, in a field. And this is a sort of, yeah, you know, and I'm like, this is 20, you know, we're, we're in 28, 2017, 2018. I'm thinking, how can this still be happening? You know, and, and I'm thinking, here I am, I'm sitting here as a, uh, as a former player, as someone who's uh, on the executive of the PFA, who sits on the global board of, uh, of the World Player Union, and here I am playing over 45s football and I'm getting uh, racially abused. And this, and this, and when you look at what's happened also globally around the world in the professionals, I mean, right up until the break last year, there was a, um, before COVID came along actually, um, in that year or so, six months, there was a massive amount of stuff. It was getting to a point in Europe where it's almost happening weekly in stadiums in Europe. And, um, and we, and, and as a member of, as a member of the global board at Union, I had got, I got fed up 
with the fact that we keep putting out statements, and FIFA do this as well, are saying how much how much I have zero tolerance for racism, but nothing structurally is ever done. <laughs> you know, they're interested in the gestures, but nothing structurally is ever done. It's always just symbolic. And again, and that's and I'm not interested in the statements or the gestures. I'm interested in uh, uh, in affecting structural and systemic change, and and that's one of the big um, differences I think with the global movement now with Black Lives Matter. It's interesting that you say those uh, things are essentially gestures. I wonder where you think the whole taking a knee culture uh, fits in. Is that a, a gesture for most people? And oh, I've done my bit now uh, and I don't really need to engage a, a deeper issue here. Or is it is it something which helps uh, momentum continue? It's interesting that because I, I, I mean, I read a few weeks ago with uh, Justin Langer, the Australian coach, um, he couldn't understand what, where the taking the knee thing came from. And I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> you know, where have you been? And he's, and he's, and the question is, is, oh, well, you know, where did, where did this originate with, um, with, uh, Indigenous Australians and the elders? And I'm like, you know, where have you been? And, and whether Australian cricketers, whether they should, take a knee and whether they should in, in support of Black Lives Matters. And then we've we've had recent statements as well in Rugby Union with Nick yeah. Fire Jones saying that uh, um, Australia doesn't have um, issues about racism here. And I'm like, where are these people living? You know, and 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 it, and this is and this is and this is the point, you know, that this this thing's so deeply structural, you know, that it's uh, when you talk about whiteness, you're talking about, you know, you're you're, you're talking about a set of ideas, a set of beliefs that's so entrenched that unless you challenge those ideas and you challenge those beliefs, you know, that um, taking a knee or, 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 or sort of just um, tinkering around with um, uh, anti-discrimination policies or, or anti-bias training or, or d diversity and inclusion, I mean, most liberals, most progressives tend to think that those are the answers. They're not. You've got to challenge those very beliefs and, those, um, and which, are, which are the things which drive um, which, which is the thing that under, um, undergirds, if you like, um, Western society and, 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 and certainly in societies where they're majority white. And I think we've got to challenge those underlying beliefs and, and thoughts around racial hierarchies. And, and, and I think these, these are the things, these are the discussions we have to have because quite often um, people find it very, very confronting uh, to talk about this, you know, especially when you're deemed to be white, you know, it's very, dis uh, it's very confronting because it's easier to talk about diversity. It's easy to talk about inclusion, but it's not, but it's very uncomfortable to have that discussion around, um, uh, racial superiority and racial hierarchies. And I think that that's the discussion that needs to be had because there's too much of the focus goes on to, uh, the rights holders, you know, uh, who are sometimes constructed as victims, the black, uh, the black people, people of color, women, you know, especially you know, when it comes to gender equality, which is another massive issue for us uh, in terms of trying to shift our own, in terms of our own organisation with FIFA, some of the work we're trying to do in terms of gender equality and some of the stuff I've been involved with at the PFA in terms of shifting gender equality. It's a huge issue. John, uh, we've heard mentions there about, you know, Justin Langer and uh, Nick Farr-Jones, and it sort of invites the question as to whether these issues are seen differently in different sports. What, how do you see this? Well, can I just thank uh, Francis for his opening comments? I think uh, really informative about where we are. Can you turn your microphone on, please? Um, yeah. On there? Yes. How's that? Okay. Um, yeah, so just again, I'd like to thank Francis for his opening comments. Um, I think um, sports like uh, rugby union and cricket do have a, 
a history there which they need to reflect upon. Um, rugby and um, cricket both refuse to acknowledge the Black Lives Movement, which I think is a fundamental representation of where their values are in sport in Australia. Um, I'm part of a team at the moment that's doing a review of Collingwood Football Club. Um, and those of you following racism would look at um, some of the comments by Heritia Lumumba in uh, the press. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done around um, what difference really means in clubs, because um, there is this, I guess, overriding um, value that when you go to a club, you've got to fit in. You can't be different. Yet one of the things that we love about our sports is when they're different, the things that they bring, the mercurial things that they bring to a team. So I think what does difference really mean in a team and how do you accommodate people who are different? Uh, one of the things that still amazes me about, say, the AFL is that there's how many guys are playing that game. There's only been the odd one or two guys have come out and, and said they're gay. There can't be that many guys playing the game who aren't gay. And so, so what, are the, what are the barriers for these sorts of people to come up and be able to express themselves within the sport? Um, so one of the one of the problems that, or one of the things that we'll be talk, we've been talking to Colin Football Club is about what what are their what are their values what are their real values, and some of the things that what Francis just alluded to that is you know what are their unconscious bias. So I think one of the things in Australia that we've really got to think about is this whole thing about whistleblowers, and that as soon as a whistleblower comes forward, whether it be in business or in sport, we turn on the whistleblower. Somehow it's their fault. When instead of that, we should be looking at what are the underlying principles that have brought this person to be brave enough to bring an issue such as racism forward. One of the things I will say though, one of the encouraging things I will say about sport in Australia is that the way Adam Goods was treated by the press was a lot better than what Nicky Winmar faced in the 90s. And so a lot of those, a lot of the documentaries, uh, the two documentaries that were made about Adam Goods were actually made by people in the press. And I think if you look at history, they'll say that there's been some change, although at a glacial pace, to support Indigenous players. But you look back at, say, someone like Nicky Winbo, Winbo who was pivotal in um, the sort of action for the racial vilification code in sport. He was given very little support and he's still wounded by that period in time where he was... And he didn't actually make a statement. He just pulled up his shirt again, Collingwood. There's a bit of a theme going on here. In, in, I hope there's no Collingwood supporters because <laughs> I, I might have to leave quickly at the end. But, you know, Alan McAllister... Eddie Maguire. So there's something going on. But, you know, he didn't actually say anything. He didn't actually come out and ex yeah. sort of make a great public comment. He just lifted his shirt and said to those people who were calling him the same sort of things that Francis was called and said, look, yeah, I am Aboriginal. I'm here and I've just torn your team apart with, with Gilbert McAdam in this game. You can call me and think you like, we won. Here's my black tummy. And that created such uh, such severe ramifications for Nicky that he was basically hounded out of the game. Um, but I think the writers such as yourselves are in a really powerful position to support um, both Indigenous and people of colour in this country, people like Heritia and people like Francis who have experienced these sorts of things. So I think, you know, um, you, you guys are, can be part of the, uh, the, the solution. Is it? Uh, I'm just interested uh, with the references that both of you have made about uh, the different cultures in different sports. Mm. Is the inherently international culture of football, does that give a different perspective to the more parochial, yeah. you know, other codes of football I was just uh, having responses? A, yeah, I was just having a conversation with Benito when I was getting a coffee and I said one of the great things for me, I got to work with Charlie Perkins uh, many years ago um, and one of the things he said to me was one of the great things about playing soccer is he felt at home within the culture of soccer because so soccer 
does embrace difference. It does have people from different cultures. And he, he, he never felt like he was under pressure or was being vilified, although he probably was, but felt quite at home within soccer. And I think, you know, for me, soccer is still this great sleeping giant in Aboriginal communities because it is such a, it's such a good game. It's, a, it's, it's has great utility. And you can, I'll just come back from a field trip out to Walgett and Dubbo and places like that. You can still play it out there in the dust and the dirt. Just put a couple of milk crates on the ground and get a ball out and kick it around. For me, um, you know, uh, AFL and rugby league have stolen the march, but I still think that soccer and because of its cultural values and its diversity, still has great appeal in going into the future. I think it can make significant inroads in the Indigenous community. Strikes me, uh, we should, uh, John Maynard's uh, uh, can't be with us, as I mentioned earlier, but his book, if you don't have one, um, get one, because it's a really good book and tells a, a really uh, fascinating story about a whole variety of players and their experiences. And you referenced to that to Charlie Perkins' mm. idea about football fields as being almost a like a neutral zone where you sort of liberated from uh, the everyday pressures, to, at least to some extent, is something that uh, John Maynard picks up from his from his own childhood mm. and getting on a getting on a football pitch mm. and uh, feeling freer. I mean, let's uh, not get too romantic about that, <laughs> how remote that might be, but it's an interesting idea. Mm. This whole business of um, football as a as a, a place to be liberated from mm. these kinds of pressures. I think if you look at Charlie's history and where he came from, he came from an Aboriginal mission, you know, and 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 all his mates played soccer. A lot of his mates played soccer, but it was liberating considering where he where he'd come from and where he ended up and the sorts of place he he now holds in Australia's history and black politics and um, and 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 that soccer was part of that, and he did feel at home in soccer, and it was a place where he could express his athleticism. I think someone was talking before about you know he you know he was a he was a competitor and it was allowed him the freedom to express himself yes yeah. uh francis the uh, uh mention of the uh adam goods nikki winmar uh experiences in in the afl are um you know stories that we're all familiar with but uh the treatment of both of those men by australian media was nothing short of disgraceful um, I wonder whether you have a view about what, since we're in a room with plenty of uh, football media people here, whether you have a view about how well or uh, or otherwise uh, media have treated issues about racism in football and our football in Australia or elsewhere for that matter. Look, I think that, in our football, the round ball, there's always been this, I think that the issue of racism has always been something that's treated, I think, far more seriously, I think. And I think for whatever reason, I think because of football's inherent diversity, um, when you look at the, the history of football in Australia, um, I was talking about whiteness earlier, you know, you're talking about, you know, um, the fact that, um, and when I say whiteness, I don't mean white people. I mean it's 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 a set of ideas and principles, and and predominantly when you, I mean, uh, there's a. In fact, I've got a um, um, been reading a book recently from a, a scholar around how the Irish became white. You know how the different racial groups over the years became integrated into being white. You know because I'm sure a lot of you are sitting here, your parents remember coming here, and you were, and they were wogs. They were not white. They were not Anglo. They were wogs. You know, so over time, a lot of 
people sitting in here through the, being first or second generation migrants and now been assimilated into being white. And the point here is, is that, you know, for whatever reason, football was a lot more diverse. You had all those, all those groups, um, all those migrant groups who came together uh, and, and played football as a sport. And, and I think that um, in terms of my own experience of the game as well, having come here, um, it enriched my life, you know, being able to play with um, Greeks, Italians, Croatians, Serbians. I mean, before I came to Australia, I didn't know the difference between a Serbian and a Croatian. <laughs> Bosnian, to me, they were the same, you know, but <laughs> but you come over here, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you you, you get Melbourne, Croatia, you have the Shabafi after the game, you know, the, I was one of the family. I was treated, you know, and and so that there was that 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 in, that real bond of bringing everyone together from different backgrounds and learning and having respect for each other's uh backgrounds and cultures and i think from what john was saying um so um, what you're saying about um uh what you're saying around um uh, the late charlie perkins i actually had the i was for good fortune to meet him actually and uh and one of the things that he did was that he was actually he played at sydney olympic and they actually helped to fund him through university you know and he was saying how much he you know how how he didn't he felt more at home in football than he did, you know, um, otherwise outside that, that sphere. So I think football's always had that inherent diversity, but I don't think, but I, we moved away from it somewhat. And um, I think during the Lowy era when the A-League came in and, and the whole old soccer, new football thing, which I think was wrong. Uh, and also the, um, the um, N uh, NCIP, the, um, the, the policy around, uh, around the names and all that, yeah. you know, and that, that was completely wrong. And, uh, and there were number, but thankfully we've now changed that. Yeah, so it's, it's really important. I think with football, we've always had that. And I think that's one, one of the things that I've liked about the game. With the other sports, they've been predominantly white, <laughs> you know. And I think when you look at the AFL, the AFL is scared of taking a uh, – the AFL, even now, today, after all of what's happened with Adam Goods, when you look at the way that was reported at the time, I remember at the time I was actually in the UK. I was outside the country. So it's actually interesting that I could look at it from the outside in, you know, being, being overseas. I was living in the UK at the time, around about 2014, 2015, and during that period, 2016. I was in the UK when that was going on. And it was so obvious to me that, that the booing – and it was racist. It was completely racist. And the AFL, Gillan McLaughlin and the AFL Commission, they would not, they were so scared of coming out and saying this was racist. They kept making other excuses. And a lot of the journalists, there were only a handful. Um, there were only a handful of journalists. There was a few. And, and, and Richard Hines was one of them. And I think Rowan Connolly might have been another guy who, who spoke up, who said, look, this is wrong. This is actually racism. You know, but a lot of the AFL, you know, the journalism around, or the journalists around the AFL were just they they just took this equivocal position, and uh, and it's and as I said, you know, it's really important that the journalists actually um, hold the game and hold sport to account because um, sport has a bigger role, uh, especially professional sport, it has a bigger role than just um, being a business which generates uh, millions and millions of dollars and provides a living for you guys who cover it. Um, it, you really do need to be holding these people to account. And I saw that with the AFL. And you now see that with Nick Farr-Jones. And I'm like, well, you played with the Ella brothers, you know. How can you be saying this, you know. And so for me, and I think that's to do with the fact that those sports are inherently white. And, uh, and so to change the culture within those sports is probably going to take a lot of work. And cricket is the other sport as well that's probably like that. 
Does that ring true for you, John? When you're looking across a range of sports, um, that it's not quite addressed? I think what uh, Francis said earlier about symbols and representations doesn't go to the heart of the matter. And I think sports are better at it than others. Um, certainly rugby league and AFL have been better at the symbols and moving forward in indigenous rounds and, and, and acknowledgement of country and things like that. But when you slice down a bit deeper, you could, then you've got to be brave enough to unpack it in a way that brings about change. Um, you know, we need to observe how power is influenced in sport and, you know, why can't a young kid call it out? And that's because they're under pressure to fit in. They've got their professional careers to think about. And so as they move through, when they get towards the end of their career, they're in a much better position to say something about it. I think um, you know, some sports are better. I hope, I'm hoping the work that we're doing with Collingwood Football Club is going to encourage the AFL to be more progressive and to unpack it because I think it's in their best interest to do it. Um, we've got to get down to really what matters in people's lives. We can have all the um, sort of cross-cultural training you like, but it's when you get down to unpacking what people's bias are and how they react to situations is really important. Um, and you can see this in lots of areas in our lives from, you know, people who are whistleblowers in business around banks or you know, all the other things is that instead of turning on the people who raise the problem, engage with them and dig a little bit deeper to see what, what the problem is. And that's when you get true change. And I think yeah. soccer, oh, I keep calling it soccer and I know people are going to pull me up. After call it's it okay. Soccer, nobody nobody going to shoot you here. I did do some work for the FA once upon a time in England. Um, that was a, in a different life. But um, I think it, it has the capacity to do that because of the, the, the sorts of people have come into the sport from overseas and, the, the backgrounds that people have and the sorts of things they've experienced, especially the first generation people. Um, uh, Roma, who spoke earlier, I imagine um, he's treated a lot differently now than when his people first came to this country. So I think people who have been exposed to that have, are in a much better position to be more thoughtful and progressive in dealing with, with racism. So I just wanted to add very quickly to it as well. I think sometimes as well, a lot of the times, I think when the media deal with racism, they tend to sort of think, oh, it's just some isolated yeah. person calling somebody a bad name or you know racism goes a lot deeper than that it's 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 structural and systemic you know you've mm -hmm. got for example we talk about um black and um, we talk about obviously the fact that there are black faces not being input not being in influential positions um we look at the fact that say i go through europe for example and you look at say something like the english premier league 30 percent over 30 34 percent of the players who play in that league are black and yet there are barely any coaches who are black mm -hmm. there are barely any black administrators who who um at a senior management level there are barely any black board members you know, and this is this is this is what I'm talking about. This is the structural aspect of it that we don't deal with. It's not dealt with. It's that's kind of hidden away. And we think that yeah, just having diversity in and of itself is going to resolve the problem. Black faces in high places are not going to resolve the issue. I can tell you that now, uh, because if if you are if you stick a whole load of black or brown faces on boards or in your management teams, if the underlying beliefs and um, power structures are racist if they are pushing uh, uh, if they are um if, if if the underlying powers if if those thoughts and, and and beliefs are still are still there and they've been perpetrated every day then uh, there's no point in having a black person there. i mean I, i'll give you an example as barack obama a black president but 
could he do anything? No, he couldn't because there's powers and the structures um, and the power and the structure and, and, and of, the, of the political system just wouldn't allow him to affect any change. And that's that's the issue. And, and I've always made that point that, yes, yes, I sit on the board of FIFPRO and yes, I'm chair of the PFA, but I'm not interested in being a part of the, I'm not interested in being a part of this group or this powerful club. I want, to, I'm there to make change. I'm not there to just, um, to, and, and unfortunately, there are many black people who take these positions, um, but uh, go on then to um, reinforce those same power structures which, um, which um, oppress uh, the very people they're there to represent. Mm. And, and, and as I said, that, that these, and this is a sort of thinking, it needs to be a lot more, um, a lot more thinking in depth around power structures. One of the interesting things you raise there too, Francis, is that if you look at rugby league, 15% of their player population are Indigenous. Yeah. Yeah. Over 40% are Polynesian. Yeah. So just before COVID struck, there was a move by Polynesian people associated with the game to, 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 to try and change the power structures of the NRL. Now, that will be held in abeyance now until COVID's over, but it's not lost on Aboriginal people and, and Pacifica people that... Who are the coaches, you know? And I'll give you an example of the way coaches think about sometimes Indigenous players. A young boy I was involved with who comes from La Perouse in Sydney uh, was drafted into the South um, senior team and he missed a few training sessions and some of the players were whinging about this player not turning up. And we found out later that he had some family situation, but he physically couldn't get to training. Hmm. So if that coach had to be more inquisitive, he would be asking the questions, well, how can we make sure that player does get the training if he generally wants to be there? So there's all sorts of these machinations that go along below the level which need to be teased out in order to give access to players, ensure the equity and, and ensure that they're part of the power of the sport in the future. Yeah. Just a question of uh, players. Obviously, this is your area of uh uh, particular expertise in representing players. I think every team that I've ever played in, my last competitive game was in the St George District over 35s, by the way, so the age grades are important for me, um, is a range of opinion that uh, may not necessarily be following one particular ideal. I'm just wondering here if you have a bit of pushback from other players who are either indifferent to the issues that uh, we're discussing today or even a bit hostile to the idea of taking action about them i mean do you, do you have how do you manage that well it's i, I don't know I, that's a difficult one i think i can only speak from personal experience i mean for example the the incident that happened with me um, a few years ago my team actually walked off, <laughs> the, um, right. uh, Fraser Park team. We actually walked off the field and said, we're not playing. And and I was red carded for actually protesting too vigorously. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm saying, so not only have I been racially victimised, now the referee also decides to victimise me uh, uh, as well. But, you know, so the whole thing ended up at a tribunal. But my team walked off and in the end we... We, we were winning the game at the time. Uh, no, sorry, uh, we were. It was we were drawing the game at the time. We probably would have beaten them anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what they vilified you. Yeah, yeah. I scored a hat trick against them in the game before. <laughs> so the the thing was was that they um, my team walked off and said no, this isn't acceptable. And um, 
it ended up at the tribunal. In the end, it was a semi-final game, and we ended up um, we forfeited the game, and 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 it was found. Uh, obviously, the, the the charge was found against a player, and he was suspended for a significant period of time. But the point is, is that you see this decision going on at a global level, and the problem is, is that those who are affected are the ones who should be given the decision, who should be allowed to say, look, you know, here is a violation of my human rights. What are the remedy? What's the remedy? What should we be doing to remedy those breaches? Now, for me, with sport, I think that it's too big an issue for us to just say, play on, we'll deal with it afterwards. Um, and, and, and I'll give you an example of that. It's FIFA's three-step protocol. You know, it's a ridiculous protocol, which says, you know, that there's these three steps where, you know, if, if someone, if there's an abuse, um, the referee stops the game, there's an announcement over the tunnel, uh, over the, over the announcements. Um, then they, then the second time the, pl- the referee can take the players off and the third time the player, the referee can abandon the game. I mean, do you, do you in, in normal life give people three steps to have a crack at you racially? You know, and this is the sort of and this is a sort of decision making and a sort of advocacy for human rights, which often occurs, which don't address the solution. They're palliative. They're there. They're temporary and they're palliative because it FIFA, because the people that are making those policies, uh, a bunch of white guys sitting in a room in Geneva, um, the very people who are affected are not a part of that decision making. And, and for me, those people, black people, whether it's black people or women or, 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 um, or people from other racial backgrounds, they should be in the room and they should be helping to formulate and to make policy. And this is, one, this was, this is what has to happen and this is what we're trying to drive right now at a global level um, because the, the, the three-step protocol is a joke and it's an absolute disgrace. I mean, and, 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 and so... And we, we, we are right now, as we speak, trying to change that. And then there's, this, there's a lot of work which goes into doing that sort of policy work. But it's because but black players and, and people from ethnic or, or from different gender backgrounds have to step forward and they need to be, they need to be the ones at the front. Not, uh, I know that, um, that, that, um, that they're not the ones who can change, have the power, uh, but they need to be, it's their voices. We need to lift those voices up and give them, uh, it's their voices that need to be, um, uh, to be to be um, directing and to be focusing on a direction which change needs to occur. So the three-step thing, is that something which is, which carries through to the domestic game by virtue of our FIFA membership? Um, well, it's used in international football, uh, and I know that it's used in Europe. I'm not sure whether or not that is implemented here. Um, but we, as I said, it's not really been an issue here, but certainly in Europe it has been. Yeah. Uh, and so they do have that three-step protocol for UEFA tournaments anyway. Uh, and for international tournaments of FIFA. I wonder whether you see this as a bit of you know, being a, a, a union man. Do you see this as being a workplace issue? You know, workplace safety is a absolutely base level requirement for any industrial representation. Is, is that is that part of the the mix here? Well, exactly, because it's it's the, it's part of the arguments we've made that um, racial abuse uh, or anti-black abuse or whatever, you know, whether it's around um uh, sexual orientation that it's a workplace issue because nobody should have to go to work and be abused yeah. and be uh, put in situations uh, where uh, it's going to damage their mental health and uh so we've we've made that argument quite strongly and that the clubs 
and the, uh, and or the competition organisers have uh, an obligation. They have a legal obligation and a duty of care to to to, to those players to not um, to not allow or to present or to pre present a, a, a workplace which is free of abuse uh, and, and 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 vilification of any sort. Now. Um, it's it's a it's a difficult issue to deal with because I think what tends to happen, as I said again, is that FIFA and UEFA, uh, yeah, and again, very white organisations, um, they tend to sort of prioritise their commercial um, their their commercial um, interests, you know, and 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 uh, I'll give you an example of that is uh, England, and there's a there's a there's a there's in, England, England England players have been racially abused in international matches in in Europe. Uh, I can't remember which country it was now. I think it might have been Bulgaria, something like that. And they and they fine them twenty thousand pounds or thirty thousand pounds. And Nicholas Bentner uh, 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 carried out an um, ambush marketing uh, where he pu pulled up a shirt for a, a betting company, and um, he um, during a match, and uh, and he was fined um, three or four times what this you know the fine. So. That's what I'm saying. Everything's everything's back to front, and I think it's a human rights issue, as far as I can see. You know, with the, 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 this issue around uh, the discrimination in a workplace, and also, uh, and in terms of even gender equality, it's 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 it's, it's a discrimination. It's a human rights issue, and I think FIFA, under its um, uh, commitment to uphold human rights, uh, I think it's um, uh, under its uh, statutes, does have a commitment to actually to to do that to actually um, start to really um, put into place um, the structures um, which will provide remedy for anyone whose rights have been violated, and 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 that remedy must be effective. John, was that something that uh, forms part of uh, the discussions you mentioned? You um, work with Collingwood, but uh, on a broader scale too. Is this an issue that comes up? Well, it's definitely a workplace issue. Um, if you went to your work tomorrow and someone abused you for for a whole range of things that related to being gay or your religion or your race or your colour, then it would be a workplace issue. And one of the things that our research into Collingwood hasn't been completed yet, but we would be uh, talking about all those sorts of things, about you know, if another Heritia Lumumba walks into the club, how can we make sure that he is uh, his rights protected and that he's not... Um, his ongoing tenure at the club is not compromised by the fact that they don't address those particular issues. Um, and I think that's the foundation of, of our workplace um, laws. I was going to say with Collingwood, it, 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 it seems to me that it's not just a, it's a question of culture, but it's also a question of the leadership there. They've mm. been there a long time, a lot of them. I mean, Eddie Maguire, has been in that club a long time, and he's been. He, the guy's got more lives than I don't know, you know, nine cats. You know, for the things he said, you know, especially, um, and and he just keeps getting away with it. And mm. and and this is symptomatic of an institution that doesn't, for me, that doesn't take this issue seriously. And I think um, uh, with Heritier Lumumba, I mean, the the way they've treated him has been an absolute disgrace. Mm. You know, absolute disgrace. And if you were a black, if I, I mean, if my son was going to, I mean, I have a 20 year old son. I mean, he's, thank God he plays football rather than the AFL. But um, if he was, I wouldn't, I'd be very concerned about him going into an environment like that. I really would be because, yeah. you know, um, it, it's, it's just toxic, you know, that um, Aboriginal kids 
um, and you know, that should have to, and, and that this is what they've had to put up with for a long time. Because I remember during the time when I was playing as well, and the things they'd be saying about Aboriginal players going walkabouts and things like that, you know, and thinking, and not just recognising that Aboriginal people have cultural issues and cultural needs like everyone else, which needs to be accommodated in a workplace. And um, it's just that blatant racism that's been embedded and been a part of um, sport for so long here that needs to really be tackled. And we also had the issue, obviously, rugby union with, um, uh, with uh, sorry, the, uh, what's his name? Um, Israel Folau, yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Israel, yeah. yeah, and again, these are human rights issues, you know, and I think that if the sports... Um, I would point the sports towards actually adopting the United Nations guiding principles for, um, for business and human rights, which actually then gives them a framework for being able to deal with these types of issues. Um, I'm not sure whether... I think, I think yeah. rugby's got a history of not acknowledging anything. You go back to the 1971 tour, South African tour to Australia, we had those six um, Australian rugby players who... Um, who protested against the um, against the uh, the Springboks? They never yeah. really played yeah. rugby for Australia. And if you go back to Peter Norman's mm. support at the Mexico Olympics, right. again, yeah. he never he never ran for Australia again after that. And he yeah. was he was revered in America in the civil rights movement, but he was he was castigated and put down in Australia. And he never was that. And he still holds the Australian record for the two hundred meters. That's correct. And um, he's he, so he's a superb athlete, but. Um, you know, we again we uh, we attack the people who are trying to to to, to stand up for something that's really meaningful. Yeah, the institutions haven't really changed because if you look at the um, the um, the AOC, I mean, they're now. I mean, there's 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 this, this discussion around about athletes being able to protest um, in the Olympics, and the and the AOC have made it very clear that any athletes who protest that they'll be sanctioned. And I'm thinking, haven't you learned from the whole Peter Norman thing? You know, this is, you know, um, and, and they've now built Peter Norman a statue, you know, yes. uh, uh, yeah, 50 years later. Yeah. But, you know, but now this issue is live right, um, today again, you know, Black Lives Matters. And the, the same um, institution is saying to um, uh, athletes, if you protest in the Olympics, we will sanction you. Mm. And it's just, for me, it just beggars belief that, mm. you know, that this is the, that this is where we still are in 2020. And there's also a false premise here that politics and sport don't mix, and they've mixed for since <laughs> since since time immemorial when it comes well, to sport. Um, and you know, um, it's 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 might be the only opportunity that a that a, an athlete gets to advance a cause is mm. at the Olympics. Well, inseparable might be mm. inseparable thing rather than. Yeah. But we've just been mentioning in this uh, discussion. Agencies like the United Nations, like FIFA and other international bodies. What do you make of the idea of having some kind of international superstructure under which more localised uh, you know, resolutions of issues of racism might be addressed? Is, is there a role, do you think, for having a, a sort of big statement of principles uh, that might you help might have, people make local decisions? You might have an organisation akin to water uh, in terms of drug violations. You could you could do something in the area, but I, I take Francis's point here is that if there's no actual um, remedy on the ground for the player that makes the institution accountable, then you're, you're really just creating a new institution. Yeah. It really has to have some 
some grunt behind it. Yeah, look, I, I think that the, the United Nations guiding principles is actually uh, on business as human rights. It's a very, very good framework. And uh, a lot of businesses around the world have adopted it. FIFA has adopted it as a result of all of the scandals uh, when set Blatter back in 2014. Uh, and, and, and having that, having the guiding principles of human rights actually saved um, Hakeem al life. Because if Hakeem had been a wrestler, uh, if he'd been like the guy, the wrestler who was killed recently, if he if he was being a basketball player, um, he would not have. That wouldn't have. I mean, he, he probably might not be here today. It literally was because FIFA adopted, and, and FIFA is the only international sports federation that's actually adopted the um, guiding principles, which make um, which um, in which FIFA undertakes to respect human rights uh, in accordance with the international human rights standards. Now, there's no reason why. Um, the AFL can't adopt that. Um, there's no reason why rugby union can't adopt it or cricket. Um, and, and one of the great things about this is that it does protect the rights of not only um, the players uh, um, in terms of their human rights, but it also protects them as human rights defenders. So those who defend human rights, who are athletes, um, their, their human rights are protected, and which means that um, sports governing bodies cannot punish or, or sanction or, or vilify uh, uh, players who actually make a stand on on issues of human rights, and this is a very very important thing. So, for example, the Israel Folau, um incident, if there if there was a um, that would have given them a framework for them to be able to actually deal with that, without having without what we had with the the, the expensive court case and and, and everything else uh, on all the on edifying spectacle that went with that. And I think that that's that's one of the reasons. But FIFA still got a lot of work to do. Don't get me get me wrong in terms of human rights. Um, uh, there's a lot of um, that framework still needs to be. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to undergird it, and that's one of the um, work that we're now currently doing with regard to racism and also in terms of gender equality as well. We've only just um, uh, touched in passing, I guess, uh, issues of men's and women's football. Are the are the issues pretty much the same, or do they manifest themselves differently? How, how do you mean? I'm not... Well, I'm just wondering, you know, we've, the, the examples that we look at, uh, mentioning Hakim is a little bit separate, of course, but uh, I wonder whether the uh, pervasive nature of um, racism uh, in men's sport is the same in Women's sport and women's football, anyway. It, it can be. I mean, I think you, you, you've seen incidents. Uh, I, I can. Uh, there's an incident, for example, of the English FA some years ago with a, a black uh, black um, woman player, Eniola Aluko, who yeah. played for the women's national team, and she was racially vilified by and and the coach had, had racially vilified her and a number of other uh, black players, uh, uh, women players in the England team, uh, and. And, and she'd complained about it and, and he'd literally um, victimised her, ended her career. And the other players who, who um, stood up with her, they were also excluded from future squads. And, and, the, and what had then happened was, was that there's an investigation which was carried out, um, initially um, found that nothing had happened, uh, but apparently it'd been inadequately conducted. And a second in investigation found that the, um, that the, charges um, against that coach was upheld and in, in in the end anyway they sacked him for different reason um and so she was vindicated but she was out there for months you know and uh 
been told that she was a disruptive influence and 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 so and the, and so the the decision makers within the FA so that was the 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 chair the board the senior management those people are even after they were it was found that the coach had 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 said and 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 committed all his racist acts they had protected him and they stayed in their jobs mm. you know and and the 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 coach the chair of the English FA only resigned uh um, recently, and in the past, he'd said things like pushing equality or, 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 or pushing equality or, or, or diversity is um, that stuff is just fluff, <laughs> and you know I'm not going to get sacked for that. And and that's 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 the standard of governance at the top, uh, and, and that's one of the biggest football associations and and in, in, uh, in the world. So if that is a standard there, you can imagine what it's like everywhere else. Oh, Luca, this is a pretty uh, good writer about football these days, yeah, I'd say. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, John, you've worked, as we've mentioned before, with a number of sports, and uh, one of which is uh, Netball Australia, I believe. Um, we're talking about a, an exclusively mm. women's sport. Mm. I wonder whether uh, you may not have been involved in any discussions directly about issues of racism there, but I wonder whether there's a different attitude in a sport which is, in fact, run by women. On, on some issues, they're very, very good about protecting the rights of women around. Uh, I think when they did their enterprise bargaining grant, there was a lot of discussion in there about the sorts of things they wanted for women, uh, entitlements and stuff. But they still haven't grasped the idea of how they can uh, improve the number of Indigenous players in their system. They recently had the Indigenous round and the only Indigenous player in the system was benched and she was uh, benched for, for reasons we don't know why. Um, and so they've still got a lot of work to do. I've just um, been involved with Netball just recently uh, trying to you know, look at their systems and their pathways to try and improve. Not only they want to improve how they get kids through the system into their elite sport but one of the things that we suggest and it's not just that we also want to look at you know how do you how do you treat people within your sport how do you um, accommodate difference Adrian before we move into uh, some questions I might just ask the guys to uh, give us a bit of a picture about you know a practical measure that could be taken either by uh, reporters or by the FFA, which would uh, improve this the, the situation, better address issues of racism. I think it'd be great to hear from John on that because he's doing some work on on. on we will. We'll, I mean, we'll uh, certainly get there. Do you want to take it first, John? Yeah. Well, what what one of the things that we'll be saying to the uh, AFL and to Collingwood are: What are your values within the club? Um, how do you how do you rec recruit people within your club? And then how do you support people within your club? So what you don't want in the future is another Heritia comes along and he says, look, you know, someone's called me a black chimp, uh, which is what one of the allegations that Heritia has yeah. made. Yeah. Instead of ostracising him, how do you keep him in the fold? You work with him and then you start to, you know, unpack that within the club. So you've got to look at the club's values. There's no use at the end of this, Collingwood, saying, look, you know, we've We've passed that whole era of the Nicky Winmar, the Alan McAllister and, and Eddie, Eddie Maguire. We're moving forward. If you don't have within your system a way to address those particular issues. Yeah. So one of them is coming down to your values. What, what do you value and how do they rep, represent it within your club? How do you deal with these things when they come along? Because you can have as many black players in your club or many people of difference, but when something comes along, you don't deal with it properly. So 
the practical things is what are your values, how do you deal with them, and how do you move forward in the future to support that player? Because in actual fact, you know, you, it might be that you have a coach who's, who, who has never unpacked their values. And if, you can, if they can reflect on themselves and where they're from and the, the, the attitudes they bring and they become a different person, then you've satisfied two things. You've supported the kid or the player, but you've also helped that coach move forward and the sorts of things he does in the future in that club are different and he becomes a leader of change. What you don't want is the succession of Alan McKessler down to Eddie, Eddie McGuire. I keep saying Eddie James, his rugby coach is an old friend of mine. He's got some <laughs> other stories there. But you know, you, what, you, what you want in the future is a, a, a new style of leader within your organisation. That's where you get change. You don't get change by, you know, great philosopher Pierre Bourdieu says, you know, you just reproduce, reproduce, reproduce. You don't want reproduction. Hmm. You want change and you want and you want change to be seen to be made within the institution. Yeah, that's a very good point by John there, because as you said, just having black faces, a lot or, or a lot of diversity or including people, because all, all that does is just it, it, it creates a, a sort of benevolence in which certain uh, people of brown faces or, or black faces are, are in the system. But if all they're doing is reproducing these oppressive power structures and 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 then then you're not going to be changing anything. I think that the also other thing is is that for me the whole discussion shouldn't really just be focused on the victims, on the or the individuals or those whose rights have been violated. It needs to be focused on the system. It needs to be focused on those. Um, we need to be having really, which means that people have to be really um, having uncomfortable conversations around these systems, around these ideologies of, of um, you know um, white supremacy. Uh, uh, and and the, um, which which is also a legacy of slavery and, and imperialism. We need to be having these discussions. It requires self-examination, uh, and it, uh, for us to look historically, and for us to also look in terms of contemporary, in terms of uh, and all those sorts of things. We need to be looking at that because quite often when we get to that, people then want to shut it down because it's too hard to deal with. Mm. Uh, and I think that 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 that's uh, that that's one of the things that we need to really be having these. Di di these deep discussions around these systems. And the other thing I, I wanted to say was that, yeah, there's also frameworks which we can use um, that, that if, if used constructively, I think that we can make a lot of progress around this. As I've mentioned, the, um, the United Nations Guiding Principles, I think is an excellent framework um, if, it's, if it's used. And I think for a lot of these issues, it, certainly in Australia, uh, in, on Australian sport, I think it will go a long way to start to put frameworks into place, which will also, because the whole idea on it, the, the guiding principles is basically a, a three-step thing. It's to protect, respect, uh, and remedy. So it's uh, the, your sport, your your organisation, your institution, whether it's your business and businesses are um, sports are big businesses. So they're they're business enterprises. They have a right. They have a um, they should respect um, um, uh, human rights. They should do that because they're, they're, they they are uh, um, in in order to be able to justify their social license, um, they they have to respect human rights. Um, they have to have policies which um, set out what um, what their what their policies are in terms of human rights. They need to do due diligence in terms of uh, looking at what the risks are in terms of uh, human rights violations within their own business. Uh, what what are the risks that they cause themselves? And what are the risks that they link to? You know that um, they might be caused by um, a partner or, or or somebody in there, uh, or 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 a, another business that's in their um, uh, their supply chain. So we need to be looking and, and assessing these risks, and and then they and they should have be able to use their leverage to prevent 
these risks or to at least to mitigate the risks where there are risks of uh, violations of human rights. And there's also the fact that also that we need to not only that, and where there are violations of human rights, that there is a remedy. There's effective remedy for those victims uh, to be able to uh, um, to to be able to access redress. Uh, and those and those um, effective re uh, remedial mechanisms, they have to have uh, input from the victims uh, themselves because it affects them. So and then also obviously to monitor and to communicate what they're doing um, regularly on human rights. Uh, within their organisation, I think these are the sorts of frameworks that I think you know, moving forward um, are going to be effective. And I think this needs to come into sport, into certainly into professional sport. Uh, we've done a lot of talking, a lot of information to absorb. Um, so maybe we could move into the phase of uh, presenting some questions. Would you like? Yeah, so if uh, anyone wants to ask questions, um, feel free to stand up here. Um, I might just ask one first, if that's okay. Um, for me, where do you think the underlying issue of racism starts in our country? For for me, when I was at school, I've only just turned 30 and my both my parents are Italian and we were always taught about, you know, they brought salami sandwiches to school, they got racially abused, wogs, wogs this and that. By the time I went to school, that had all sort of subsidised. There was no, you know, I must laugh and sometimes call myself a bogan wog because I've got the best of both worlds. But in terms of, you know, Indigenous and issues with, you know, slavery, as you mentioned, Franny, and uh, stuff like we were never, I was never shown an Indigenous map of Australia until I turned 23 and I was out of school. I was never taught, I was only taught history of Australia after 1788. Do you both agree, is that the fundamental problem how racism, you know, goes into different parts is because from in our formative years, we're never taught the actual issues of whenever un to understand Indigenous culture and all those sorts of things and issues with with Black people in countries like Africa and what they face. Do you, do you think that's where it starts? Uh, yeah, look, I think uh, one of the things I can say, being involved in the university system, that is one of the things that is changing in Australia is, is our desire to teach kids at a much younger age about the, the truth of our history. But unfortunately, that's been circumvented by people like Howard and Abbott who, who, who've coined the Black Armbrad Brigade to, to try to diminish our real history. Um, and one of the great things about Inner Island was the truth-telling and, and some of the stuff in South Africa was that let's have a real conversation about what happened in this country and don't be scared to have it. It's going to make people feel a bit uncomfortable, or is the term that Francis has raised, but let's, let's not back away from that. And it's also as we grow up, it's how friends around us react to racism and what people who, who are bystanders do about it. We've got to encourage people to say, look, you, know, you haven't done the right thing here. Maybe that's not, not, not the right way to treat that person. Um, and I know from my own experience, you know, I've seen both sides of that coin growing up. Um, you know, my mum's Aboriginal and my father's a, a Western guy from New South Wales and I saw in her family how when that wasn't treated properly at the time, that people develop certain attitudes towards people who are who they think are below them. And I think that's 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 we have to keep interrogating those those sorts of things. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really come out is through Black Lives Matter is this issue of history and um, and colonialism and imperialism and you know, we talked about people talk about statues and things like that. You know, it, it's it's basically just sort of looking at history with a clear eye and saying, look, you know, 
we've got to decolonize um, what we've been taught. You know, we've got to we've got to really look at history. Um, history is not it's messy. You know, it's not it's not it's not a linear thing. It's not it, it can be a bit messy, but I think that it's just as John says, with Australians. Yeah, I, I find that Australians sometimes. I mean, I, I wasn't born in Australia, but I find I know more about Australia's history than some Australians, which I found a bit. I remember um, picking up a book um, many years ago, one of the very few I read when I was a player. Uh, it's called John Pilger, called A Secret Country. Yes. Uh, and I wrote and I read that and, I, and, I, and, that, and that totally opened my eyes. And I went, whoa, you know, this is, you know, because the image I had of Australia before then was completely different, you know, um, to it's, it's like this white, you know, blondes everywhere. And, you know, and then when you read about the history of Australia and, and Aboriginal people and, um, and 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 you just it just completely blew my mind and um and I think that was when I first started to learn about the Aboriginal people and even with me being a, a black African British descent, I know that I have a privilege. You know, I I, I mean I'm living on stolen land. I'm living on Aboriginal land, and I know that if I walk into a shop dressed in a certain way, people. And especially if I speak in an English accent, people will treat me differently to if an Aboriginal person walked in there, you know, and it's just little things like this. And I've seen it happen. I've literally seen it happen. And, um, and so I think that, you know, that this, this whole view of history is really important. And I think that we need to um, not be afraid to look at, look at our history in its, um, all the good bits and all the bad bits as well. And, 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 and yeah, sometimes you've got to, embrace it you know and say well this is this is what it is um but don't um but i think we've spent um last couple of centuries i think certainly in australia and i think in a lot of western countries really pretty much deluding ourselves about our myths and uh, uh myths and found about our founding fathers and all that and we can see that now with the united states you know with the way that um, what's happening there with the elections and all the myths around the founding fathers. And I mean, these founding fathers were all slave owners. I mean, but everyone thinks, oh yeah, these guys are really virtuous and they're great people, but they weren't, they were horrible. I mean, they, yeah, they founded democracy, but it was democracy for white people and not, and black people weren't considered as part of uh, the dem democratic experiment. And they're still not considered a part of the democratic experience, as we can see with um, the Republican Party going around trying to um, invalidate votes in areas where there are where black votes are going to make a difference to whether they win or lose and and this is and this has been the history of it so i think we but now i think everyone can start to draw that line now through um, back uh, to the founding of the country and i think we need to do the same thing here and i think also myself being british it's the same thing as well with the the united kingdom um just with the questions probably a good idea just in case there are people who don't uh, know you just to yeah. Introduce yourself, perhaps, and uh, we'll proceed from there. I'm Chris Kunz. Um, just for Remo, first, I, I loved your talk. Um, New York Cosmos versus Australia game was not 1978. It was 24th of October, 1979. And I remember because I was in the queue, I had a ticket in my hand and there were so many people at that gate, it was knocked out of my hand. I had to rebuy it. But you, you, it you was an amazing night. You probably started queuing in 1978, though. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's my memory of that yeah. night. <laughs> I, I was out in the Cosmos when I started, yeah. Um, look, uh, I've watched football in this country from 1961. I can remember seeing Charlie Perkins, a young Aboriginal leader, 
play for Panhellenic, and it was Panhellenic, yeah. Francis, before Sydney Olympic, yeah. uh, in the 1960s. I'm, I can say, I'm proud to say that uh, I'd say around 20 years later, I was proud to call Charlie a friend. I knew Charlie well. Uh, we played together in the um, Canberra City Old Boys side with Johnny Warren. Um, and I can honestly say in all the decades I've watched football in this country, I never heard or saw any incidents of what you would call racism. That is not to say, Francis, that it did not occur, and I'm sure I totally believe you that it did. Um, I just want to add that overwhelmingly football has loved its black stars. And I don't mean the Ghanaian national team, and I know you have super <laughs> eagles background, that's Nigerian, not yeah. Ghanaian. Um, football has always loved its black stars. Uh, Pele, the Black Pearl, was voted Athlete of the Century. Uh, that's the uh, 20th century. And uh, a player like Eusebio, who came from Mozambique, uh, the Portuguese colonisers took him back. Uh, he played for uh, Benfica and he played for the Portuguese national team. And he was so beloved by the Portuguese that when he died in 2013, he was buried in their national pantheon in Lisbon. So my question to you is this. If you think there is systemic racism in football, how would you like to see selection for the national teams, the Socceroos and the Matildas treated? Would you like to see quotas for Indigenous and black players in the national teams. Perhaps you'd like to see Andrew Howe's uh, diversity statistics proportionally reflected in uh, national team <coughs> selection. Or would you agree with me that really we need players selected purely on merit, uh, where colour, the aftershave you wear or the perfume you <coughs> wear is totally irrelevant? I, I I'll, I'll take that on. Um, I think sport is, I think sport, I mean, football is probably, and sport, I think is the ultimate meritocracy. I think certainly from my personal experience, um, the the idea that we should select players um, based on their racial or ethnic backgrounds for me makes no sense. Um because I don't think it's an issue. <laughs> We're trying to resolve a problem. Uh, I mean, I think that's proposing a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Um, it, it, the issue here is more around structural racism in terms of uh, in terms of the power structures, in terms of the institutions at an institutional level. It's more around the fact that you know the the decision makers or the decision making um, bodies and institutions don't reflect. Um, those who play the game. I think that's 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 the issue, and that's the issue at a global level, and certainly internationally. Um, that's a problem that we're trying to resolve. And I think that for me, as far as the the playing side of it goes, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think proposing that, as I said, it's it's proposing a solution for um, for a problem that doesn't exist. John, you have a view? Mm, I will. I'm, I'm not quite sure I agree with quotas. Um, what I what I would like to see is the unpacking of the systems underneath that that facilitate as many people to participate in the game as possible. Um, I, I gave a talk at an old rugby club that I was involved with in Melbourne some time ago, and uh, one of the guys that I used to play with was um, you know was 
lamenting the, the the decline of South African rugby because there was the quota on all these black players playing the game. And I said to him that, well, maybe you should look at the results at the moment and just see how good a team South Africa is. And subsequently, they won the World Cup last year. Um, so I, I I don't know that I don't know that necessarily quotas are a good idea. I do agree with the idea of, of understanding how the institutions run. What the power structures in there, how they pick their coaches, what their what their coaches' values are towards difference, and how that might um, how that might um, we might be able to affect those changes. Going back some years ago, the Matt Rendell um, uh, said in publicly or was quoted in public as saying, "Look, I'm only going to I won't pick an Aboriginal boy who's got both parents are Aboriginal. If they've got one that are white, then I'd, I'd be more inclined to pick them." Um, so things things like that. I think they're the things that have to disappear from the sport over time. That allows us to not have to worry about things such as quotas. I think I think quotas um, are a distraction from what the real yeah. issues are. We don't want to be distracted. Yeah, I wanted to make just one quick point to that was that um, if you're going to deal with inequality with regard to that. I think that it's more at the lower level in terms of access and opportunity uh, for people, um, say for indigenous kids, for example, their, their ability to be able to play the game and access, because obviously with football, uh, finance is an issue. And I think that's, uh, so it, it is around those issues that we need to work on and focus on. And, and as I must say, the, the Moriarty Foundation do great work with their program in terms of the access, but that's not, um, because I think it gives kids the opportunity and using the game to actually develop um, the whole person and not just trying to produce um, mm. footballers. Can I just make one comment about, about money? And that is um, a couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine whose daughter was playing um, and she was in an elite squad and someone said to her that it was going to cost her $3,000 a year to be in this recognised mm. program within within um, Australian soccer and then she wasn't in this program, she wasn't going to make it. Then you take the situation, you're playing rugby league in, in the South Sydney area, you don't pay a thing. Mm. And then, you know, so I think that's something that's got to be unpacked in soccer about these so called private academies yeah. and, you know, the pathway through. And, and, you know, you, you know, a good player in Australia shouldn't have to pay $3,000 to be part of an academy. Agree, regardless of, of where, what their background is. I yes. wasn't actually going to make this comment, but having heard what Chris has said about how football loves its black people, Mario Balotelli, Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, would they agree with that comment? I don't think so. I think most of the people in this room who are football people love their black players, but I think it would be wrong actually to say that football does. And that gets back to what Franny has been, Francis has been saying about there's systemic issues. And while we in Australia have organisations such as the Moriarty Foundation who do good work, that's all we have. That's all we have. Where are our Indigenous players in the A-League and W-League? Um, and, you know, that, that gets back to we need to be able to look at giving more young people greater opportunity um, from Indigenous backgrounds. That takes money. Um, but it also takes a willingness and a commitment and getting the structures right. However, that's not what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> what I actually wanted to pick up on, and Francis and John have mentioned it a number of times about how it's important when there are issues of race around that there is backing from the official organisations. A couple of months ago I wrote an article, and I know Vince Regari's um, also written about this issue, not, a, not related to an Indigenous player, but a young player from uh, a club here in Sydney who um, 
when he heard two or I think three players from his squad being racially vilified by another player, stood up and said, don't do that, that's not appropriate. Um, that person um, was then given a king hit, basically, and ended up being in hospital and getting thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of medical treatment. Um, but what has football officially done to, to help that person? I know that the family has gone to FFA. I know that they've gone to Football New South Wales. I know that they're trying to get some sort of recompense and even an apology for what's happened, but football officially doesn't do it. And I just, I, I guess I'm making a comment. I'm doing a Q&A comment rather than asking a question. Um, this is part of the problem that football has. It's a the, it's a, it's the same continuum, whether it be corruption, whether it be bribery, whether it be match fixing, whether it be racism. If football officially, and I mean FFA, and I mean football New South Wales, can't stand up for this young man and say, you did the right thing, S standing up to a bully who racially vilified three Japanese men is the right thing to do, and we applaud you for it, um, then football is not addressing the issues of racism. Thanks. Thank you, Lenita. Um, any other questions? None. Fire away. As I said earlier, if you uh, identify yourself for those who may not be familiar with you. Uh, my name's David from Newcastle. I'm not a writer. I've just loved this game since the day I was born. So, uh, John... A comment for you, uh, I'm a primary school teacher and inside most of the classrooms at my school in the middle of Newcastle, the Indigenous map of Australia is the first thing you see. In my room, Nicky Winmar's post is directly underneath mm -hmm. it, so he's he's not forgotten, well and truly. Uh, Francis, my question is, between 1993 and 1996, when you were involved with the national team uh, and you won your caps against a career in Japan, did you suffer or face any racial issues with the national side? It's a difficult question I'm just interested to know because I think of Harry Williams and even Awama Bill today and I often think how these people, how these men are treated. Thank you. No, I have to say that no, that's a question to ask no. I mean, the, the players, I mean, I, I'd say that 99% of the players are great. I mean, I'm not going to say that uh, every single player in Australia is, uh, you know, that they're anti-racist or that they're not even, you know, I'm not going to say that, but I think that most of the players I dealt with throughout my career were great and fantastic. There was never an issue around race. Um, there were the odd one or two on the field um, and that and that happened in the, in the heat of competition, but still it's not excusable. Um, but as I said, overall, Australian football has been pretty good. And, and since I've retired, I haven't seen many cases of um, racial vilification on the field. I think the last one I saw was the one with uh, Dean Bozanis, I think it was, um, with um, Barisha. Yeah, that's right, when he actually uh, uh, was an allegation of referring to Barisha as a gypsy. And, and I remember I was just finishing my law degree at the time thinking, oh, equal opportunity, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, so that that was a thing. And it's funny having to explain to people um, that actually and they were saying, yeah, but he's white. You know, how can he be, how can that be a, a racial uh, and ethnic snow? I said, well, actually it is. Um, and I know, you know, that if you look on the um, 
under the act it would be that that would be that would be the case but it's i haven't seen a lot of i haven't seen a lot of it off the field i think australians are pretty good my i think where we are weak um is i think that we have to have a lot more football and i and i think football we need to do a lot more work around indigenous australians i think that's where we are weak we don't i still think that we um are not doing as much as we can to in terms of indigenous australians and this is where i think that the the uluru statement you know i think that's going to be a fantastic document and it's great that um the the, the ordinary australians have embraced in uh, uh the uluru statement unfortunately our politicians are still um our politicians haven't which is a shame but one day they'll catch up with us um and I think that for me is, is, is really, really, that's a pathway t- towards me where hopefully that's, that will bring Australia together one day, whether you're black or white. And I really do think that the Uluru Statement, the amount of work that's gone into it, um, what it stands for, you know, treaty, um, truth-telling, um, for me, that's, that's, a, that's critical uh, to, to fixing this um, divide that's kind of there but everyone pretends it's not there, but it is. Um, yeah, so that's that, that's that's where I see. It. But yeah, but to answer your question, no, most of my all of my teammates are fantastic. They're they're great people, uh, and um, and and I think that's that again probably goes to the fact that I think in Australia there's that mix in terms of people cultures, and I also think the international nature of the game also lends itself to uh, a much more inclusive and diverse uh, place where people actually come together and they understand each other. Um, whereas I think with the Australian games, such as rugby league, AFL, cricket, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more provincial um, and um, and in, 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 in terms of their thinking. Um, and, and I think cricket also being kind of like a, a colonial sport, if you like, um, the, you know, it's, it's sort of got a certain way of thinking embedded into the way the, um, the, the game is itself. Um, but yeah, my, my, my teammates were great. Most of them, as I said, no issues at all. Adrian. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, any more questions? All good? Trevor, you can wrap up. Okay. Well, I'd just uh, like to thank uh, everybody here, uh, but especially uh, panel members today who I think have given us uh, plenty of things to think about. So um, perhaps if I can invite you to uh, thank... Uh, John Evans and Francis Savoratifi. And that's it for the sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, finishing with that session with Trevor Thompson, John Evans and Francis Savoratifi on Do Black Lives Matter in Football. Thanks to everyone involved again in the 2020 Football Writers Festival. It was a fabulous event and we're looking forward to building bigger and better um, for 2021 with more details to come later on in the year. In closing, I'd just like to say thank you again to the Johnny Warren Football Foundation, Synergy Sports, Football Nation Radio, and of course, Fair Play Publishing for their support of the Football Writers Festival. Next week, we'll be back with a regular session of Football Insiders, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. In the meantime, if you feel like reading a book, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au and you'll find lots of terrific football books, both as something to have and to hold and as an ebook. Until then, we look forward to speaking with you next week. But until then, stay safe, be happy and continue to enjoy January 2021. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. 
Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.